they lived the vast majority of those years as adults or what we might call senior citizens. In other words, for Abram, middle age is not 80. Um, Sarah is 77, and she's a 77-year-old woman with the body of a 77-year-old woman and the reproductive abilities of a 77-year-old woman. She has no child, but she does have, we are told, this Egyptian handmaid. Almost certainly, this is something that she had received from her time in Egypt. When she was down there and Pharaoh had brought her in, brought Sarah into his household with the intentions of adding her to his harem, um, and Pharaoh enriched Abraham because of this, no doubt, or it seems that there's little doubt, that one of the things that Sarah received was this Egyptian handmaid. And Sarah then suggests that since she cannot have children, Hagar should be the surrogate. And it is at this point in the narrative, folks, if we are, particularly if we were Hebrew readers, that we would, we would be being clued that we are revisiting the Garden of Eden. That, that the demeanor and activity of Sarah and Abraham at this point in time are exactly like or very similar to the demeanor and the activity of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. For instance, at the end of verse number 2, okay, Sarah says, the Lord hasn't let me have children, but I have Hagar, and perhaps we could have a ch- you could have a child with Hagar. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, So we have that echo, Adam hearkened to Eve, and Abraham hearkened to Sarah. In Genesis chapter 16 and verse number 3, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, tree to be desired, to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. So we are being returned in their logic and in their conduct, not to the same activity, but to the same mentality that we find in the Garden of Eden. In both of these events, folks, the woman was active in leadership and the man was passive in leadership. Now, in our world, in 2023, inequality between the genders is one of the great sins of our civilization. And woe to anybody, public figure or corporation, that would be accused of denying a woman equal rights and equal authority. 
But folks, it just doesn't work that way with the Lord. It just doesn't. And part of the failure here was the failure of mature male leadership. He shouldn't have listened to the voice of his wife, but he did. Adam shouldn't have listened to the voice of his wife. I think we all understand, gentlemen, this doesn't become carte blanche. I don't have to listen to my wife. But women shouldn't run the home. Women shouldn't run the home. Hagar then goes on to become the surrogate for Sarah. You'll notice, folks, and this is true throughout the entirety of the story, that Hagar's feelings and opinions and desires have almost no bearing upon the story. Nobody ever says to Hagar, what do you think about this? Hagar, how do you feel about this? She was simply the servant girl. She was owned by Abram and Sarah. She was under their authority. And she is a passive, if unwilling, it's hard to imagine that she is thrilled about this, but she is a passive participant. And one of the things, folks, that we want to understand or that we should understand as part of contributing to the story is that what they are doing is completely legal and logical in their civilization. We know that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldees. We know that he was part of the great civilization of Sumer. And part of the way that Sumer operated was it made legal provisions for this kind of surrogacy. So however we might feel about it or think about it, right? there is a, there is a culturally acceptable, totally legal dimension to it that they are pursuing. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right to the Lord. But it is not conduct in the face of the norms of their society and their culture. In verse number four, when this young woman conceived, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. When she realized that she was going to have a baby and Sarah wasn't, the tables turned. And from that moment on, it appears, Hagar kind of lorded it over Sarah. Now, we don't know exactly how she behaved herself, but I think, folks, that we can imagine that she took every opportunity to point out to Sarah that she was pregnant and Sarah was not. And that she was carrying Abraham's child and Sarah was not. 
And we know that the relationship becomes very tense because in verse number 5, Sarah turns this back onto Abram. My wrong be upon thee. Right? I have given my maid into thy bosom. When she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. Now what? Now where are we, husband? This is just a curious note. I mean, it it has nothing really to do with the Bible story. It's just a curious note. In verse number 5, the word wrong, the Hebrew word wrong, is the word Hamas. Hamas. We've all heard of Hamas. The Arabic word Hamas means zeal or zealous. But the Hebrew word Hamas means wrong or wronged. And some moderns speculate that one of the reasons the Ishmaelites, the Muslims, chose the word Hamas is because of the way that they could use it to poke Israelites in the eye. They knew that it would upset them, that they were zealous because Israel had wronged them. Like I said, nothing to do with the Bible story. Just, I thought, an interesting little note. And so in verse number 6, to round out the folly of Abraham and Sarah's context, rather than take any kind of responsibility or leadership role, He just dumps the matter back in Sarah's lap. She's your handmaid, you deal with it. And so Sarah deals then harshly with her. Harshly enough that Hagar decides to leave. And she begins to run away. So again, the first six verses, folks, point out to us the folly of men. And and we want to make sure that we understand this. The folly of men included doing things that were completely legal and totally logical. They weren't breaking a law. They weren't violating a cultural norm. They were looking at a problem That was a very real problem. I'm 77 years old. I don't have a child. We have a promise. Here's a way that we can accomplish the fulfillment of the promise. And folks, we just really, we just really need to be very careful about allowing our human logic to override Bible verses. To look at something in the Bible and go, I know that that's what God says, but there are all of these factors over here. Or here is a way to get it accomplished. So they came up with a legal and logical solution that again, ended up causing them all kinds of of pain and turmoil. I mean, if we just back away from the large, we'll, we'll get to this, this will be one of the passages we deal with before we leave Abram, but, right? I don't. I, it's not that Ishmael becomes a thorn in Abram's flesh. Ishmael becomes a grief 
to Abraham. He is his son and he loves him and he is now required to deal with him a certain way because he is not the child of promise. So without all the big, large, theological composite pieces of Ishmael's life, the sin of Abraham and Sarah bring personal pain and complication to their own existence. And that brings us then to the second part of the story, verses 7 through 16, which are the faithfulness of God. What is God now going to do? What is God now going to do that Abraham and Sarah have attempted to deal with their barrenness by coming up with a surrogate? Verse number 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Bir Laha Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So following the folly of men, we turn our attention to the faithfulness of God. And God just happens, of course, to find her. That's the way the text reads. Not that it was a difficult search for him. But she is headed back to Egypt. Shur, S-H-U-R there, Shur is the first place that Israel camped after God delivered them from the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 22. And the angel of the Lord appears unto her and There are times, folks, when the angel of the Lord seems to be a representative of the Lord. And, of course, there's a lot of speculation as to whether it would sometimes be the representation of Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. In this instance, the angel of the Lord is, in some way, God himself. And we would assume that from the way that he speaks. Rather than speaking of the Lord kind of in the third person, he speaks in the first person. Verse number 10, the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly. 
So here's a place, folks, where God himself makes a personal appearance. God appears in visible form to Hagar as she is heading back to Egypt. Again, right? God has made a promise to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, God intends to keep that promise in the way that he had intended it to be. And now we have this baby on the way. I mean, you know, folks, one of the things that the Lord could have done was just take the baby He could have just said, this, this child, he took David's baby. He could have just, he could have just said, we're going to, we've got to put a, we've got to put an end to this right now. And I'm just going to take the baby. Or the Lord could have ignored the baby. And the Lord could have just simply said, you made the baby, your child, your problem. I have nothing to do with this baby. But that is not what the Lord does. And again, we right, we are amazed and perplexed and thoughtful about the way God operates in accomplishing his purposes. So what the Lord does, first of all, he converses with her in verse number 8, where would you come from? Of course, he knows, I ran away from Sarah. Where are you going? Well, we've got that figured out. She's on her way back to Egypt. And again, in verse number 9, folks, without any kind of a conversation with Hagar about what she might like to do, Hagar, tell me, what would you, what would you like to have happen now? Or what, what do you think we should do? Or what can I do for you? You've been wronged. You've been mistreated. How can I make this right? There is none of that. Instead, Jehovah God says to her, go back. Go back and place yourself under her authority. Put yourself under her thumb. Verse number 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. This is what Hagar is to do. This is the instruction that is given to her. And then in verse number 10, in verse number, or in verse number 10, in verse number 11, the Lord begins to talk to her about what kind of child she will have. The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. So the same kind of promise that was made to Abraham about his seed is extended to Ishmael about his seed. Verse number 11, the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child and shalt bear a son. And thou shalt call his name Ishmael, which means the Lord hears, because the Lord hath heard 
thy affliction. So God is, right, and we know this, folks, God is not oblivious to everything that has happened to this point. He is seen into the hearts and of Abraham and Sarah, listened to their conversations, observed their behavior, watched Sarah mistreat Hagar, been attentive to all this, and now, to some extent after the fact, God comes in and begins to act. Which again, is really rather typical that God allows us to have our way oftentimes and then and then he appears to get involved on the consequence side of things. So what kind of man will he be? Verse number 12. He will be a wild man. And there's some debate about whether this is a criticism or not. I tend to think that it is. The word that is used there, wild, is actually used nine other times in the Old Testament. The differences in your King James Bible, in every one of those nine instances, it is always translated wild ass or wild donkey. And that's one of the reasons that there's some debate as to whether Ishmael is being complimented or criticized. Because if you really wanted to criticize somebody in that world, you called them a dog. That was about the greatest insult you could come up with was to call somebody a dog. To be called a wild donkey was not necessarily a criticism, but just might simply be a commendation of your independent spirit. But I think overall within the framework of the text, I don't think that he is being praised for being that kind of young man. He is going to be a man that is not under control. What kind of man is Ishmael going to be? He's going to be an uncontrollable man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. Which again, I think is one of the reasons that we shouldn't find a compliment in wild man. His uncontrollable nature will cause him to be often at war with others and have others often at war with him. Now we want to make sure that we understand something, folks. Ishmael is not a Muslim. We are many centuries away from the institution of Islam as a religion and the worship of Muhammad. But the connection is that Islam had its birthplace among Ishmaelite people, people of the Arabian Peninsula. So that Ishmaelites today tend to be in large measure Islamic people. Back in the early days of America when we were dealing with the Barbary Coast pilots, pirates, we were simply dealing with an early form of Islamic terrorism. President John Adams said, we will either fight them never or fight them always. 
It will be one or the other. So he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence the presence of all his brothers. They're, they will be congregated in concentration, literally in each other's face. So here's where we find ourselves. As a consequence of Abraham and Sarah's action, we have a man who on the one hand God promises will be multiplied as the stars of heaven and God predicts will be a wild, uncontrollable race of people. And if you were to go to the Middle East, or if you've been in the Middle East, you know that they live that tension every day. They live that tension every day. And they know what they are. They they refer to themselves accurately. We're cousins. We're cousins with the Jews. That's what they will that's what the that's what they will tell you over there. We're cousins. In verse number 13 then, in verse number 14, Hagar, interestingly enough, Hagar responds to this in faith. Hagar doesn't rebel at either the instruction or the prediction of the Lord. But she does what she is told. And she designates God, verse number 13, she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me, you God saw me. Now whether or not this is a testimony of faith, I mean of saving faith, I don't know that we know enough to declare. And she named the well, that was where God found her, by a well of water, the well of the living one who sees me, Birla Heroi. The well of the living one who sees me. And she obeys the Lord. Verse number 15. Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. So that what we have, folks, is, you know, without telling us in so many words, she goes back to Abram and Sarah. She submits to Sarah. She obviously informs them of this conversation and Abram responds by naming the child Ishmael as God had said, I want you to call him Ishmael. Okay, we'll call him Ishmael. And then we have this note in verse number 16 that Abram is 84 years old. I'm sorry, 86 years old. Four score and six, not four score and four. 86 So he's an 86-year-old man when all this happens. Right, so here's the faithfulness of God in several ways, right? He has really no obligation to Hagar. His covenant is with Abraham. Abraham has in some ways betrayed the covenant promise by his relationship with Hagar. 
But neither does God transfer all of the covenant provisions to Ishmael. Ishmael is not the son of promise. And this is how God is going to use this to develop uh, the major theme of salvation by faith versus salvation by works in the Bible. He extends some of the promise, the promise of a great seed, but none of the promise of the land. And you know, folks, that they're fighting over the land and the Ishmaelites lay claim to the land because of their relationship with Abraham. But God is very clear that the promise is that they will be a great nation, but not that they will get the land that he had promised to Abraham. Turn then finally to Galatians chapter 4. The time will come, and and we haven't got to that yet, but I'm going to have us read Galatians chapter 4 right now. The time will come when God will insist that Ishmael must go, and God will give instruction that Ishmael has to leave. But for now, Ishmael is to be born to Abraham and Sarah. And he is to grow up in that household. How does the Lord use this? Right, We're familiar with this. How does the Lord use this incident? And why is it so significant for us? Galatians chapter 4, verse number 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, Do ye not hear the law? And folks, there is always the temptation on the part of God's people to to go back to the law. There's just always that temptation to go back. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by the promise. Which things are an allegory in that the people and the parties involved, folks, are invested with their own spiritual meaning and significance. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. I'm going to bring the Old Testament reading into the New Testament there, which is Hagar. King James Bible says Hagar. Right, so here's Ishmael, and how do we describe him? Well, he's a child of the flesh. Well, Isaac is a fleshly child. But he's not a child of the flesh. He is born out of the promise. But Ishmael is born not simply as a fleshly child, but out of the thinking of the flesh. And he's born to a bondwoman. And that's what the law is. The law is a bondage. And folks, the New Testament makes that argument in numerous places. Not too far down the road, we will read, Jesus, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. We have a tendency in the 21st century to read and hear that verse as if it is an emotional appeal. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. But I would make the argument, and we'll make the argument when we get to it, folks, that it is an appeal to people who are laboring under the bondage of trying to please God by the observation of the law. Who are laboring under the weight of the Mosaic Covenant to maintain their relationship with the Lord. This heavy weight that laid upon those people. Verse number 25, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is superior to Sinai, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she with hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And we will look at that, right? Ishmael will mock Isaac, and upon that, God will say he must leave. He has to go. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman, verse number 30, and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of free the free Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then he takes them right back to what for the Jew was always the critical burning issue, and you got to get circumcised. And you got to get circumcised. And Paul goes, if you go there, right, you got nothing from Christ. You got nothing from Christ. To go back to the law is to obligate you to the entirety of the law. That's Paul's point. So this is the way the Lord uses this, this illicit relationship, this, this relationship that was logical and legal but was not out of faith. And... Here we are to this day. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and we will be back at 11 o'clock.